Well, I want to say welcome to all of you today, those who are here at our 930 Cornerstone service, those uh, worshiping at the cafe today, as well as those who are worshiping online uh, with us uh, this morning. Uh, If we have not met, my name is David. Uh, If you're a first-time guest here, I want to especially welcome you and uh, appreciate the opportunity to share with you. Uh, I want you all to know that I was given a new title uh, this week. I was at my son's baseball game. And uh, some sisters of boys who were on uh, my son's team were there. And one of them, a second grader, found out that I worked at a church. And she asked me the question, what do you do uh, there at the church? And before I could answer, the sixth grade girl uh, seated next to her, who happens to go to our church, uh, she said, he's the talker. (laughs) And I thought about it. And I thought, well, I'm talking this weekend, I'm going to meet with staff in the morning and talk to them, and then again on Tuesday, I'm going to teach a Bible study Wednesday morning, I'm going to preach Thursday night at Celebrate Recovery, I'm going to take a day off on Friday, preach again on Saturday, Sunday. I really am the talker. I mean, that's what I do. I just talk around here. So, new name tag tomorrow. I'm going to request that. We'll see if that, uh, we'll see if that goes through. But uh, I, I am excited about uh, sharing with you. Uh, if you were here at the beginning of the service, you heard the announcement about date night uh, and that uh, the pastors and spouses that uh, would be there to share with you and that, that if you come, you will get to hear the story behind why I shaved my head. And I want you to know I've been working really hard on coming up with a really good story for why I shaved my head. I don't know if that's going to be that amazing or or fun, but I I do know that Pastor Caesar and his wife Cynthia will be there. And that's worth the price of admission, okay? You're going to enjoy hearing from Caesar and Cynthia, and Steph and I will do our best to to entertain you as well. But I want to lift that uh, up to you uh, as an opportunity that you might be interested in. Uh, If you have your Bible today, I want to encourage you to open that to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. If you don't have your Bible with you, in the blue Bibles that we have in our worship spaces, you can find that on page 1644. Uh, And if by chance you don't have a Bible, uh, I'd love for you to to stop by any of our connecting points today. You can pick one of those up uh, as our free gift uh, to you. Appreciate uh, you doing that uh, and letting us bless you in that way. Uh, This is the second week of a four-week series that is focused on this singular question, where is God? And I mentioned last week that for some of you, that is the question you are asking right now. That is the question that is stirring in your soul because of uh, a particular season or circumstance that you are living in. But I also invited all of us to, to, to hear that question uh, in, in, with a broader perspective, the, to, to hear it as more than a question that some ask in faith, but a question that all of us find ourselves asking in life. It's a question that some people ask out of a sense of curiosity. They want to know more about who God is and, and, and what that understanding of God might mean for their life or for the world. It's a, it's a question that many ask in the aftermath of tragedy, in the midst of a, a season of grief or sorrow, crying out, God, where are you? Uh, it's a question that people ask in chaos and in confusion when, when hopelessness sets in. Just, just imagine with me churches choked full of people after 9-11, asking the question, where are you, God? It's a question that all people ask in life, whether they believe in God or not. We all find ourselves asking this question at some point in life, where is God? And that is, for people of faith, first I want you to hear, it's a brave question to ask. It's a hard question to ask. 
But it's a necessary question for many reasons, only one of which is this, that in our seeking, when we find ourselves, for whatever reason, we find ourselves asking that question and seeking an answer, in our seeking, we find what we can later offer to someone else who might be searching. So I want you to hear that this is not only a series for you, whatever you might be in right now, or whatever life might bring your way down the road, but it's also a series that's for others, and others who may come to you with this same question because of something that occurs in their, in their own life. Uh, so, again, we started last week. Uh, I shared that, that in each week of the series, I'm going to share with you a simple conviction that is at the same time a deep truth of the Christian faith, a response in faith uh, that we have to the question, where is God? And last week, we talked about God is here. The, our, our conviction that we are not alone, we live in God's world. We believe in God, we trust in God, in life and death and life beyond death. We believe that God is with us and so in every season and circumstance, we can say thank you God. We do not believe, we reject the idea that God has abandoned the world and we've been left all to ourselves. We believe that we live in God's world, that God is here and we looked at that through a particular story in, in Luke chapter 24. I told you last week that we're gonna be in this passage throughout all four weeks of this series. In fact, I only read half of it to you last week. We're gonna look at the second half of this encounter that happens on the Emmaus Road uh, in, in our uh, message for today. But just to remind you of where we are in, in the story, what we are looking at took place on the same day that the women had come to the tomb of Jesus and found it empty. And after discovering that the tomb was empty, messengers uh, appeared to them and they asked him this question, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. And these women had gone back to where the disciples and other followers were staying and they had reported what they had uh, experienced there at the tomb. The disciples didn't believe it because it sounded crazy to them. Peter goes to the tomb uh, himself, one of the disciples of Jesus, to, to do his own investigation, and he too discovers that the tomb is empty. We get to verse 12, right before this, uh, this, this encounter that we read about last week. At verse 12, no one knows where Jesus is. No one has seen him. No one has, has, has figured out where the body of Jesus might be. Everyone is asking the question, where is Jesus? And then Luke takes us uh, in verse 13 uh, to a whole different scene, two travelers who were leaving Jerusalem. And, and what we later find out is that these two individuals were actually there when the women shared the report of what they had experienced at the tomb. But they are leaving Jerusalem because as much as they wanted to believe that this rumor was true, that Jesus had in fact come back from the dead, they found it just too good to be true. And so they're returning to whatever life may have been before, but along the way they encounter another man who they do not recognize, Luke tells us, but Luke tells us also that he is Jesus. So we know who he is even though these travelers don't. And in the conversation that we looked at last week, these two travelers share with this man, they don't recognize, we know he's Jesus, they share out of their sorrow and despair what has just occurred. 
that the one who they believed was the Messiah had been turned over to the chief priests and turned over the Romans who'd been, he'd been crucified and he, he had been buried, but that the women had come to the tomb, they couldn't find the body. No one knew where Jesus was. No one yet has seen Jesus. That's where we ended last, uh, last week at verse 24 with just that note of sorrow and despair. No one knows. No one knows what has happened to Jesus. So we're gonna pick back up at verse 25, but I'm gonna tell you in advance uh, what the simple conviction but deep truth uh, is for us today. We talked last week about God is here. Today we're talking about God is there. And, and we're gonna look at this and unpack this uh, in this conversation that follows uh, here in verse 25. So, so read this with me. This is Jesus responding to the despair and sorrow of these two travelers. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So first let's talk about this word foolish because you probably hear that word. When we share that word, we we often hear it with a sense of judgment or condemnation. But, But I don't think Jesus intended it that way. What Jesus intended was really a theme that we find throughout all of the gospels that no one really understood who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. I love the way one of my favorite authors, N.T. Wright, puts it, uh, that for Israel, as they had read and understood their own story, the story of God and God's people, that they had been reading it through the wrong end of the telescope. They had missed everything about what the Messiah was actually going to do for them, uh, among them. And, And so in verse 27, Uh, where where it says that Jesus took the time to go back to Moses and to walk through the prophets and and to explain to them in a new way all of these things concerning himself, concerning the Messiah. This is really what the mission of Jesus' life is all about. That one verse really sums up what Jesus came to do. He came to, to, to flip the telescope around so that they could see it through the right end, and they could understand really, again, who the Messiah was and what the Messiah would come to do. And and this is evidently a long conversation. We know it's seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and we get to verse 28. Some time has passed. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Now just remember, so far they've shared this long journey with this unknown man. He has explained to them everything from Moses through the prophets about the Messiah. They are somehow intrigued by this because they don't want him to leave. They're hoping that he would stay, uh, stay the evening there with them, but they still don't know who he is. They don't know that they have just shared a day's journey with the one who was missing from the tomb earlier that day. And then we get to verse 30 and look at what happens next. When he was at the table with them, 
He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And so they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So this is an exciting moment all day long. We've been waiting to figure out where is Jesus? Everyone's asking the question, where is Jesus? Everyone is left with total chaos and confusion. The body is missing, but no one has seen him. And, and, and it's like an exciting moment because these men come back and they say it's true. Every word of it's true, all of it's true. We've seen him. But, but I want us just to, just to pause for a moment in the midst of all of the excitement and just ask ourselves this question. How did they know it was Jesus? How did they know that? How did they know that? Again, they'd, they'd shared a long journey with him and he'd, he'd unpacked the story for them, but that didn't do the trick. And, in, and unless Luke left it out, there wasn't a moment where Jesus kind of leaned over and said, come here, come here. I'm Jesus. Here's what verse 31 says. After Jesus broke the bread, this is what happened. And I'm gonna invite you just to read this, this passage with me. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. So Jesus breaks the bread and he gives it to them. And in response, their eyes are opened. They recognize who he is. And then he disappears. Now, why does he disappear? Well, we're going to talk about that in a few weeks. So you have to come back to hear about why Jesus disappears, okay? But that's not the only mysterious thing in this, in this passage. It says that their eyes were opened. But it doesn't tell us who or what opened their eyes. It says that after their eyes were opened, they suddenly recognized Jesus. But it doesn't tell us who or what enabled them to see him and recognize him, this man that they had shared this whole journey with. It says that all of these things happened after Jesus had broken the bread, but it doesn't tell us why it is this moment, it's this act that then leads to their eyes being opened and them recognizing Jesus. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, you're thinking, well, I actually know the answer to that third one. I don't know about the other two, but the third one, that's because of what happened at the Last Supper. You remember that? The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke the bread and he gave it to them and he said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. You remember that part, right? Here's the only problem with that theory these two individuals weren't there that was just the 12 disciples these were some of the other followers but these were not among the 12 so they didn't know anything about this breaking of the bread and and what Jesus had shared at the last supper so why is it that here at this moment 
Their eyes are open and they finally recognize. How'd that happen? How did they know? And how did they know it so deeply and so strongly that in what must have been the middle of the night, they got up and walked, perhaps ran a few miles, all all seven, back to Jerusalem, to the place where the disciples were staying, maybe waking them up in the middle of the night as they burst through the door with joy and perhaps a little bit out of breath, they said, it's true. Every word of it, absolutely all of it, it's true. He has in fact risen. We have seen him with our own eyes. He was with us on the road to Emmaus. He was revealed to us in the breaking of the bread. How did they know it? Well, they knew it because God had opened their eyes and God had enabled them to recognize Jesus, at this moment and in response to this act, these utterly hopeless, completely lost and totally broken individuals, they were finally able to see the one who had been with them all along. And why does it happen in the breaking of the bread? Because all along, Israel had been reading the story through the wrong end of the telescope. And Jesus came to set their understanding right again. And so in the breaking of the bread, the the, the bread which the first Christians would come to understand symbolized Jesus' body broken. Jesus submitting himself to suffer on behalf of all of those who suffer. It's for that reason that at this moment their eyes are open and they recognize Jesus and he doesn't even have to say, yep, you got it. They just knew. And they knew it so strongly that they knew hope had returned. It was time to go back to Jerusalem and to tell the others that Jesus had in fact been raised from the dead. It's only at this moment that they are able to see the one who had been with them all along. So what does that have to do with God is there? And let me begin by just describing what I mean by there. I'm gonna describe it for you verbally and then I'm going to show you what I mean by there. So, so for all the verbal learners in the room, here's what I mean by there. There is the place in your life where hopelessness comes crashing into helplessness. It is the place in life where all hope is lost and at the same time we recognize that there is nothing that we can do to help ourselves out of the mess that our life has become. Now some of you have heard this described in a different way. You've, you've heard it described as hitting rock bottom. But this is what rock bottom means. It's when hopelessness comes crashing into helplessness. Our eyes are open and we recognize that we in our 
humanity, in the midst of our broken lives and in a broken world, there's nothing that we can do to fix ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to set our lives right again. It's where hopelessness comes crashing in to helplessness. That's that's the way I would describe it for you. But let me now show it to you. This is what I mean by there. And I wanna give you just a few minutes to to just look at this image. And if you're in the cafe, by the way, or if you're watching online, you're not going to miss anything because I'm, I'm getting out of the way because I don't want anybody to look at me. I want you just to look at this image because this is what there looks like. It is the intersection of humanity's helplessness and our hopelessness. And as you look at that image, there's just a few things I want to invite you to hear. The first is that Jesus came here so that he could go there. Every single thing in the life of Jesus, every single word that he shared, every single step that he took, every decision that he made in the early part of his ministry all the way through those final days, everything was focused and directed towards going there. Jesus came here so that he could go there. Because God knew that one day we would all find ourselves there too. And God did not want you or I to be there alone. Jesus knows what rock bottom feels like. It's why the primary symbol of the Christian faith from the very beginning has been the cross. Because the cross is God's eternal proclamation and promise spoken over all of our lives. A promise that says, I have come here so that I could go there so that whenever you, in your life, for whatever reason, you find yourself there, you will know that I will be there too. In the darkest moment of your life, there will still be light. You will never be alone. I will be there too. And when you fall in that pit or when life simply reveals to you in a way that you've never seen before that you are helpless in bringing restoration to yourself, you don't have to wait for a hand to reach down and scoop you up and lift you out of whatever pit you've fallen in. There's someone who's already there with you. 
and he is there to share your suffering. He is there so that you can place into his hands your pain. He is there with mercy and grace when everything else is stripped away, when everything that you uh, have come to believe uh, gives your life value and meaning and significance, when all that is lost. There is a Father who is there with you, still beaming with love for all those things that you love about yourself and all those things that you don't. God is there. So what I want to invite you to is just a time of prayer. Whatever that looks like for you, if you want to close your eyes or simply remain focused on that image. And I want to ask you a question. Is there anything you need to bring to the cross today? Is there anything that you simply need to name before God today at the foot of the cross, at the intersection of the hopelessness and helplessness we all experience in our life? Do you need to bring a hurt Do you need to name a pain? Do you need to confess something today and repent? And if you do, by the way, it's not because you're bad. It's not because you're a bad person. It's because you're a human being. And if you think in naming that, what you're going to get back is guilt and shame, then then you've missed why God did so much to be there with you. Mercy and grace, mercy and grace. Do you need to bring to the cross today your life? every single part of it. Maybe you've never done that before. And today you would just say, Jesus, I want to give you my life. Or Jesus, I need to give you my life again. Because I've been wandering and I don't want to do it anymore. Maybe it's simply your praise. Maybe at the cross you would just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Holy and loving God, we give thanks today that you are holy and you are loving. 
and out of a depth of love that is beyond our ability to understand, you came here so that you could go there. So that we, when we find ourselves there, we would know we are not alone. And so we bring ourselves to you today. Recognizing the depth of your need even as we experience the height of your grace. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You knew and you still know today what we need more than anything else. Thank you, Jesus. Pour out mercy and grace over your people. Pour out mercy and grace over all those that you have given the gift of life. Pour out mercy and grace there. The place we might be today, the place we'll all be at some point. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.